I'm Nidhi Tiwari. And I'm Billy Samoa. And this is Relearned. Memory Relearned. This is what I'm excited about. And frankly, as I did research, I realized very quickly that this is such a vast landscape. We could spend dozens of episodes just on memory alone. I mean, we could make a whole podcast about memory. And I cannot wait, Nitty, to get into your observations and what you've learned because this is something that you've studied. This is something you know a fair amount about because of what you do. So I'm super curious, what surprised you about memory? What did you relearn? Well, first of all, Billy, I think that memory is such a fascinating topic because it kind of creates our existence day to day. Like, we know that the past is very much connected with the present, and that's because our memories inform how we move through the world. And so when I started to do some research about memory, I learned actually quite a few things from these recent research studies that I found. One that really fascinated me was done by Johns Hopkins University. And the research study basically found that the brain has over 100 billion nerve cells, and each of those nerve cells has 10,000 connections to other cells. So you think about how vast that is and how complex the brain is from a memory standpoint. And what I found fascinating about that particular study is it talks about how our memories become stronger or weaker depending on how often we're exposed to an event. So I don't know about you, but like I am terrible at remembering people's names. Like when somebody introduces themselves to me at a party, I like completely forget what their name is. I'm like, oh, shoot, I can't remember it. And that's because it's a single time that we're exposed to that particular experience. People aren't introducing themselves to you repeatedly saying, hi, I'm Billy. Hi, I'm Nitty, right? Like, and so that singular incident of that memory then starts to become like it dissipates and it becomes more and more challenging to remember versus somebody who has been, let's say, a musician and has practiced 10,000 hours at something. Those memories are super strong and are reinforced. So what the study basically found is that the less exposure that we have to a particular experience, the weaker the connections are from a neuronal standpoint. And that's why it's super hard to remember certain things that we just encounter one time. And to really develop strong memory networks, it requires repetition and frequency of an experience. Yeah. And I found something really interesting that dovetails nicely into what you just shared, which is repetition does matter. However, repetition by itself won't do what you want to do is you actually want to make it somewhat difficult for that neuropathway to be found because that makes the connection stronger. It reinforces it. To your point, our brain is so vast. I was reading an article where it talked about just how much information can be stored. 2.5 petabytes, which is two and a half million gigabytes of knowledge can be stored. And now granted, who's to say how accurate that is? And I think we should do a big disclaimer that we're still learning. We don't know everything there is to know about our mind, about our memory. And so a lot of this is based on observation. It's based on studies. It's based on experiments. We're going to share a lot today, and hopefully a lot of it's backed up by science. We can't fit, say for certain that we're not going to find out something new in the future. But what I found really interesting, to your point, a name or a face to a name especially isn't going to be remembered in a lot of cases, especially the older you get. One of the things I found is that when you're past 30 or 40, your chances of remembering somebody's face to a name goes down dramatically. Now, what's really interesting is that stories help our memory. 
And so if we're trying to think of ways in which we can give ourselves the best chance to remember somebody's name, create a story. There was a study done and some experiments done with somebody memorizing, I think it was a deck of cards. And what they did in their mind was they created a story that really helped them to remember these cards so that they could go back and through memory and through this story that they created in their mind, remember all these cards. So our brain is fascinated in the way in which it operates. So as you did your research, I'm curious, what else stood out? I know that's one big one. What, what else stood out from your research? Just quickly off of what you said too, Billy, like that, I think that makes so much sense to me because if I think back on the ways that I used to study for tests and exams, it was by creating these mnemonic devices, which is essentially like creating a story around each concept that you're trying to memorize for that exam. And by doing so, it, it, the recall was just on a different level. It really helped me to be able to remember things that when you're studying three to 400 pages worth of material, may kind of blend in, but having that type of story and device to recall and and to be able to pull that information forward really was helpful. I would love to hear what you think about that. Like, what does this look like in practice for you? Have you ever used storytelling as a way to be able to recall certain parts of information? hundred percent. I have the same recollection as you do. The times that I thrived in studies, often it was completely tied back to either the instructor teaching with stories or me studying and infusing stories to help to create that emotional connection, which actually I'm deeply, deeply curious from your vantage point, the role that emotion plays into memories. Because what I've found is that it plays a huge role in how memories are stored and the brain automatically prioritizes information based on its emotional intensity. So if you meet someone that you have a strong connection with or you experience something that is emotional, it could be fear-based, it could be excitement, you could be surprised, there's a very good chance that those memories will stand out. You know, it's funny, I was thinking about, I was at this event recently with from Mind Valley, and I saw Jim Quick. Jim Quick's known for teaching people about memory and the brain, but I could still visually remember seeing him. I'm sure I saw a lot of people that night but I distinctly remember me seeing him at this party. It's so meta. I'm talking about this guy who's all about memory and I'm talking about my experience remembering him, but it was emotional because it's somebody that I admire and respect and have this deep curiosity about and it emotionally tapped into something that helped me remember. So how do emotions play a role? I think emotions are integral in terms of memory and the research that I found backed that up actually. One of the studies that I was looking at basically talked about how positive and negative emotions and positive and ne negative memories are actually stored in different parts of the, the hippocampus, which is the part of the brain that focuses on memory. And so we have like literally different cells that are related to different types of emotions that occur within the, the context of a particular memory. And in the work that I do with trauma survivors or leaders that are help trying to navigate some of these challenges with mental health in the workplace, what I find is that the emotion behind an experience is really what defines that moment for them. It's not necessarily about what happened. It's about how it felt to them. When you have a negative experience or if you have a positive one, like what you had with Jim Quick, that really becomes ingrained within you and you develop kind of an association with that based on the emotion. So I think that they go absolutely hand in hand with one another. One thing I read also, and I, this is interesting, is how 
memories can be pushed out. So for example, positive memories can push out negative memories. Negative memories could push out positive memories. You know, I don't know what all is involved with that, but if that is in fact the case, that's a fascinating proposition because then we have more control over which memories are helping to create the experience that we have in our life. You mentioned the hippocampus and, and brain storage, let's just call it that. We have our prefrontal cortex, we have our amygdala, we have the hippocampus. What's your knowledge of the different areas in which memories are stored? I found a few things, but I don't know if you have anything that stands out from your experience that helps to define why certain memories are stored in certain parts of the brain and how they all sort of play together. I'm curious if you have any knowledge in that area. Yeah, like part of the work that I do from a trauma perspective is memory work. And EMDR, which is that intervention that I specialize in, it really uh, targets particularly disturbing memories because that memory has been stored with all of these disturbing components, like an image, a belief about self, something like I'm not safe or I'm not good enough, I'm not worthy, right? The emotions, the body sensations, all of that gets stored in a memory network. And when we have upsetting events that occur, in our lives, those memory networks get kind of frozen. They get stored with all that information and they can't move through in the natural processing that happens when you're asleep. So for people that have heard about the REM sleep stage, rapid eye movement, it's the part of our sleep cycle where we dream and you know where we kind of make sense of the day's events. And when you're typically just moving through the world, it's how you're able to start to file things away and take out the lessons and retain the information from the experience. But when trauma happens, now all of a sudden, that information is being misstored and just not able to be processed out in REM sleep the same way as your typical memories are. And that's why people have these flashbacks or they have these nightmares. It's because of all of this information that's now stuck in that particular memory. Yeah. And when we sleep, we use that sleep to kind of take out the trash, take out the garbage and allow ourselves to be refreshed. And part of that is memory as well. Our brain being a supercomputer and being able to store as much as it does, we do forget things, but that is kind of important. That's another thing that I learned is, is just that we have to be okay with forgetting, right? And forgetting is not bad, it's good. Imagine if we remembered every single thing that happened and we had to constantly recall and we're recalling everything instead of recalling certain events. So I'm curious if you've found anything or if you understand why forgetting is such an important part of the process. Because to me, I always get frustrated, right? When I forgot my keys or my wallet or this or that. But ultimately, it's actually not entirely a bad thing. Curious your thoughts on that. I would assume that we have to be able to make room for new material, right? Like it's just not possible to store everything in short-term and long-term memory. And so what's pertinent to help us to move through the world and better understand our interactions and be successful in different life domains, those are the things that are really uh, stored and are persistently recalled, right? But Things like somebody's name or what the lyrics are to that particular song. For some people, you may really, really remember that. But for other people, you may forget that because it's not necessarily helping you in any particular way in your day-to-day -day life. That would be my guess is that, you know, there's an opportunity to be able to move things either from short-term to long-term memory or if it's not really deemed salient to your day-to-day -day existence, then maybe it just gets forgotten along the way. 
And then the other factor is how we remember things can be different based on individuals. So some people, for example, are highly visual. In fact, most people are visual learners. It's funny in school, we get this thing called the textbook, but in reality, most textbooks should have a lot more visuals because when you create that visual association with the text and with the knowledge that you're learning, you're a lot more likely to remember it. So when you did your research and and also your obviously all the work that you've done with preparing to be successful in your role, what did you learn about the different styles of learning or different ways in which people process information? And how does that play into like our own memories? From what I've read and from the research that I've uh, like kind of just overviewed, I found that people tend to be a mix of different learning styles. So some people really like an audio and a visual component. Some people are kinesthetic learners, which kind of integrate touch and experiential learning as a way to be able to retain and integrate information. And I think that often, you're right, schools are very much focused on uh, visual learning, but that takes out a lot of the kinesthetic element that I think a majority of people actually uh, prefer in terms of a learning style. So when you think about a typical elementary school versus a Montessori school, the difference is that the Montessori school is based on experiential learning. Like the kids are building things, they're creating things, they're learning how to interact socially firsthand. They're not learning about it in a textbook. And Montessori school education is so different than your standard education for that reason, because I don't know that the public school systems have caught up to how people learn differently and particularly how people that are neurodivergent learn differently and how can we help them to be able to better retain and uh, to better thrive in a school environment. That's such a great point. And I think because we are unique and yes, we share a lot of the similarities, but we're also unique enough that we should know our own selves to allow ourselves to thrive, to learn, to develop and one of the things that that I found, and I, I know this is something that you alluded to just a moment ago, is this idea that when we have something traumatic happen or when we have some kind of event happen in our life, we create this memory in our, our, our mind and it can often be recreated or distorted or exaggerated after this initial memory happens. It's almost like a game of telephone, right? Where we hear something in our ear and then we say it to somebody else and they hear it in their ear and it eventually goes through 20, 30 people. There's all these iterations of what was originally said. It never ends up being an exact replica of the original statement. The same thing is true of memories and they can distort over time and human beings are going to automatically create this association with this memory and our memories really are, they're not necessarily memories of the actual event, like photographically. I mean, there's some people that have that type of memory, but the vast majority of us, we remember our memory and then all the emotions that go along with that memory and also suggestions and input, all these other factors, your own emotional state at the time you're remembering can all play a role in how your memories evolve. I'm just curious, like how does that play in either with patients that you've seen or your own experiences? Is that something that you've, from a firsthand perspective, seen yourself? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've seen memories be desensitized in real time because 
when you change the relationship to the memory, when you're able to reprocess, especially the physiological components of a memory, because remember, it's not just an emotional response. It also shows up as heart palpitations, your gut being in knots, your your body being tense, right? As you're able to to process through the emotional, the physical, the all of the different components that come with that particular traumatic memory, what I hear from clients is that it feels like the memory is distant. Or I feel like it's over now. I'm not reliving this thing. Like my perspective on it is completely different. A lot of clients that had uh, childhood trauma, right, for example, had a, a very childlike relationship to memories that were in relationship to their parents, right? Like they felt like I'm so small and I'm not capable and I'm not deserving because that's what they heard from their parents. But as they do the memory reprocessing work, now all of a sudden they have empathy for this child who needed love and needed support and needed not a critical person, another critical person in their lives. And the relationship to that memory has now shifted. So I think it's so true. And the research backs that up too, Billy, that our memories shift with each recollection. And by the time, especially as you're doing healing work, by the time that you're you're through the reprocessing and the moving through of that experience, the memory is no longer disturbing. It no longer activates you in the same way. And it just feels different to you. Fascinating. I love this topic. And it, again, it's so vast. I'm curious what else you discovered when you looked into this further and, and, and what your approach was. because. I mean, where to begin, right? Where to begin with this thing, memory. I'll share one thing and I'll pass it to you to share any of the additional insights. Context also matters when you're learning. Uh, If you've ever been in a classroom, the context is different than if you're learning in the field or on the job or if you're learning through experiences. And, And so how you've learned helps to create memories and pathways in different ways. So when you think about this, it's really fascinating to think about all the different factors that play into it. I mean, sometimes there's something fascinating that exists in psychology, which is the doorway effect. Minute you walk through a door, and there's been lots of studies on this that say that you walk through a door, you're less likely to remember what happened in that room that you just left. You could look it up and explore and find out more about I'm sure you know about it, Nitty, because from a psychology perspective, but for anyone listening, why is it that when you pass through a doorway, you're automatically kind of forgetting some of the things that happened in the experience in that previous room? Totally. I think that's so interesting, Billy, that all the perception of that encounter shifts immediately once you walk out of that room. And what actually happened is like a question mark because everybody walks away with their own perception immediately afterwards. Totally. So what else did you find? What else were some of the latest trends or news in the world of memory. One of the most fascinating one uh, research studies that I read up on was about being able to make this connection of memory recall and retention of information. So they did a study where they uh, basically put electrodes on people that already had a seizure disorder, and they were kind of mapping what their electrical brain activity was like for these individuals as they uh, had sounds played to them and had an activity that they were going to have to recall the next day. So they went to sleep, they could see that some of the patients uh, had the electrical activity in the dream sleep cycle and their memory recall that next day was completely off the charts. It was completely different than uh, in the pretest before they had gone to sleep. So that integration piece, how important it is for you to get good rest and restful deep sleep, that 
movement between the REM sleep stage and the slow wave stages of sleep are so important for memory recall. And if you're feeling like you're forgetting things in your day-to-day life, maybe look at what's going on with my sleep cycles. Am I getting really cut off sleep? Am I taking a lot of naps where I can't really go into deeper stages of sleep? Or is my sleep hygiene poor? And how can I improve that? And will my memory perhaps improve as a result of getting that sleep cycle back on track? You know what I've started doing recently is writing out a dream journal. And here's the key to it. You cannot wait. Immediately when you wake up, write everything you can remember about your dreams. And it's almost like a skill or a a muscle that you flex. And the more you flex that muscle, the stronger you get, the more you're able to remember those things. It's amazing what our brains are doing while we're sleeping. And I'll tell you what, it's funny too, because I'll have this dream and then I'll write down all the things and I'll realize those are all things that I thought about the day prior in some way, shape or form. And so then my my mind creates this scenario, this dream experience that I, for whatever reason, it's processing the day's events. It's probably allowing me to make some sense of what it is that I thought about the day before. I'm curious, like when you think about your own experience with sleep, do you remember your dreams? Have you tried doing a dream journal before? Is that something that that you've noticed anything similar to what I've noticed or have you not done that before? No, I have done it because I try to like deconstruct it a little bit. I'm like, okay, this dream is like a symbolic metaphor for something that's happening in my life. Like, what is this about? And I find like my best work, Billy, happens late at night. And so then I go to sleep and it's like my brain wakes up the next morning with all types of new insights. I feel like I have a new perspective altogether and I make a ton of edits that next day on whatever I'm working on because I think my brain has processed it through a bit. So I used to have like recurring dreams that I think were related to like stress and things of that nature. And it was really interesting to kind of see how that ebbed and flowed based off of my psychological state before I went to bed and what had occurred throughout the previous day. Yeah, it's so interesting too, because if you think about the what's actually happening physiologically, what the brain is doing, and this is my understanding of it, it's consolidating memories. And I know the hippocampus, where a lot of our memories are stored, plays a big role in this consolidation. And so when we're sleeping, it really acts as a memory enhancer. And effectively what it does is it protects our memories from stimulus, from things that are interfering with these memories. It helps to create a stronger neural pathway. And so getting good sleep is essential. It plays that active role in enabling these memories to again, to kind of be consolidated. And when once they're consolidated, then it allows optimization, right? Our brain is this supercomputer. And so we know we have these stages of sleep. We have the very light sleep. Uh, then we have light sleep, slow wave sleep, delta sleep, and then REM, that rapid eye movement. And these five stages of sleep are going to allow us to really do all these things that we've talked about, take out the garbage, allow our brain to almost recalibrate and re make the necessary connections and give ourselves the best chance to have these memories. You know, as I think about memories and I go back to this concept that I shared a little bit ago, part of the reason, yes, repetition is important, but pure repetition without creating that, I guess you could call it difficult. We got to almost put pressure on the brain to create this neural pathway because then that neural pathway is stronger and that's what you want. 
if you keep doing repetition, 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 but you're not almost challenging the mind, you're not giving yourself the best chance for that memory to become strong. Why is that? I think that when you're doing something like a rehearsal, which I I know that I want to hear your thoughts on this too, Billy, because I know that you have thoughts on rehearsal. But when you do like a rehearsal, it's all about being able to not just repeat the same actions over and over again, but I think you have to critically assess what are going to be challenges that I encounter and also visualize overcoming those challenges. And that's creating a new memory network that will help you to navigate that next scenario going forward. That's part of what we do as as the EMDR intervention is what's called a future template. It's basically a walkthrough of what is this going to look like for you to tangibly react differently to this trigger that you're going to inevitably encounter. And by doing that rehearsal, we add what's called bilateral stimulation. So it's like tapping or eye movement, things like that. And it helps to really just strengthen and solidify that. And so I I think that part of what you're saying is that like the challenging and the taxing of that memory makes a big difference in terms of the recall of it and how easily accessible it is and the associations that it gets to make as well. Yeah. When you interweave unrelated information, meaning you got your repetition piece, whatever that may be. It could be a line that you need to remember, a fact. It could be whatever, right? You need to remember this thing. But when you interweave unrelated information, it forces your brain to work harder. And when your brain works harder, makes the brain have to go back and retrieve that information from our long-term memory storage and what that does is it strengthens the, the neuro connection. And when you strengthen that neuro connection, guess what? There's a much greater likelihood that you're going to remember that thing in the future. So this is deeply fascinating. We're going to close up here in a, in a few minutes, but before we do, what are some last things that you've found or maybe some things that you still feel you don't fully grasp? I'm curious this is such a vast landscape. And again, we could spend forever on it, but I want to make sure that we give our minds a little bit of a rest and then maybe we'll explore this again in another episode. What haven't we covered or what are you still curious about? I'm really wondering about like those cognitive processing disorders and like things like dementia and Alzheimer's and how that affects memory. Because we know that people that have either early onset or typical onset Alzheimer's have significant memory loss as the disease progresses. And while we have a lot of research that's starting to better understand that, I still think there's so much further that we need to to go to understand how memory is affected and what medications can help to mitigate that. So I'm really, really fascinated by that topic just because I feel like it's kind of a gray area still in the medical community and we don't have great solutions yet for treating dementia and Alzheimer's. What about for you? I'm curious. Yeah, thanks for asking. So I would say the future. The future of where memories will go because I just interviewed someone on my show Inside Out and he talked about this idea of memories being stored in the cloud, you being able to download memories or upload memories. I mean, this is mind-blowing stuff. I mean, we haven't even scratched the surface of what's possible. We know today Our memories are somewhat fragmented. They're broken up into different parts of our brain. We use different parts of our brain to kind of create this harmony and make some sense of it. It's like we have this storage computer. Some things are on our desktop. Some things are in the documents folder. Some things are in the downloads folder. And we 
as human beings are still wrapping our arms around how to best organize. And a lot of it, most of it happens subconsciously, happens through dreams, happens just because our brain is hardwired to organize on our behalf. But imagine if we can organize with help. Imagine if we could organize in a way that would allow us to optimize our brain even further. And so for me, a follow-up episode would be, where's the future going to take us with memory, the future of memory? And to really understand and look at what's possible. Because to me, like it's fascinating because to your point, as we kick this show off, it's how we walk through the world, how we experience life is often tied back to our own memory, our own perception. We are the only person who has the same perception of life. You have a different perception than I. I have a different perception than you. And everyone that we know has a different perception than both of us, right? And so our memories play a big role in how we recognize our existence and compartmentalize or make sense of who we are and how we operate. So I'm deeply curious about what the future looks like. So I'm going to give it to you for our final thought. Anything that stands out from what we talked about, anything that inspires you to want to look deeper into memory or anything else that would be valuable, take it away. (laughs) Well, I think that we have to look at how can we improve our memory and how can we better understand what works? And so be paying attention to the tips that you and I gave today about paying attention to your sleep, being able to ensure that, you know, there's the repetition for memory, that you're creating associations, all of this good stuff and uh, implement it in your day-to-day life because it can really transform the way that you remember or don't remember something. And remember, sometimes your brain will try and fill in the gaps. Sometimes your brain is going to get ideas from other people and make stories up. And so even though our brain is super powerful, remember that it may not always be giving you accurate information. And so I think we should all be aware of this. We should all be mindful of the reality that our brain gets a lot of inputs from a lot of places. It gets inputs from the experience that we had. It gets input from our memory of the experience. It gets input from other people who could influence how our memories evolve. I mean, there's a reason why eyewitnesses don't hold a lot of water in court. Because guess what? In a lot of cases, they found that the eyewitness, maybe immediately after they saw something, they'll remember. But guess what? A week goes by, two weeks, three weeks, a month. Their memory is vastly different than it was originally. And so I'm excited to explore more on this topic. Hopefully you learned and relearned about memory. If you did, let us know what you learned. Send us a message or write a review and let us know what you think about this fascinating topic of memory. Until next time, we hope you keep learning and relearning and enjoy the journey. Thanks for being here and thanks for joining. If you enjoyed the insights and perspectives you've gained from Relearned, please consider following the show on your favorite podcast platform. We're grateful for your support, and we look forward to being a part of your transformational journey.